The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading this morning is from three different passages. Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 8, Ezekiel 18, 21 through 32, and Psalm 119, verses 1 through 9. First, Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 through 8. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Then Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 21 through 32. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. 
Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And then Psalm 119, verse 1. Verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. The word of God for the people of God. That's one of my favorite parts of our service is just hearing the scriptures read. Um, it's not, we live in such a fast-paced world, I think sometimes we don't just sort of sit and listen to the scriptures being read. And some of us, the normal way we engage scripture is by reading it off a page, but for most of human history, this is how people heard the scriptures. They heard it read aloud. So I just love that aspect of our service. Um, thanks, Mark, for that great reading. And we will be in all those passages this morning. So get your fingers ready. We're going to be going a lot of places in the Bible this morning. Um, if you were to ask your skeptical friends and neighbors, what makes them hesitant about the Christian faith? Uh, what keeps them from embracing Christianity, here's what the answer is not going to be. It's not going to be the life and teachings of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've found that um, Jesus is widely respected and revered, even among those who don't ultimately believe that he is the Son of God. It's also not going to be the golden rule. Throughout history, the Bible's exhortation to do unto others as you would have them do unto you has been widely regarded as beautiful and good for society. It's also likely not going to be the centrality of miracles and of the supernatural. Though some people are skeptical of that sort of thing, most people in our society are quite open to the existence of a spiritual world that we don't fully understand and that we can't fully explain. Rather, what often keeps skeptical people from embracing the Christian faith are the rules and commandments of Scripture. We live in a society that's very okay with Jesus, very okay with loving your neighbor, very okay with the supernatural. What we tend to not be as okay with is any kind of moral authority that tells us how we ought to live. It's the Christian ethic, perhaps even more than the Christian gospel, that's most offensive in our world today. And yet in Psalm 119, we find the psalmist saying, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. So how can we move from skepticism about God's commandments to delight in God's commandments? That's the journey I wanna take you on this morning. We're spending three weeks here in January 2023 looking at the theme of righteousness in Scripture. And last week we looked at righteousness as an attribute of God, the fact that God is righteous. So we talked about righteousness as something that God is. 
But because God is righteous, God also wants us to be like him. And so he shows us what righteousness looks like. And he does that by giving us his commandments or what the scriptures call his righteous law. So this morning, we're going to seek to understand the law of God and how the law of God reveals to us the righteousness of God. And like we did last week, rather than just dwelling in one passage, we're going to look, look at, at multiple texts in Scripture. So this is a little more of like a, almost a biblical theology kind of a sermon, rather than dwelling in just one passage. So this morning's sermon is going to be four points from four different passages, all right? Here's what I want to talk about. God's law expresses God's righteousness. That's point one. God's law exposes our unrighteousness. God's law trains us in righteousness. And God's law evangelizes a world hungry for righteousness. So we're going to have an overview of God's law and how it manifests to us the righteousness of God. And so let's take these in turn. First of all, God's law expresses God's righteousness. The first text I want to take you to is that first one that you heard read in Deuteronomy chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. If you're using a Bible under your seat, you'll find that on page 139. Uh, you'll see the text up on the screen also. Now let me read again what Moses says to God's people here in Deuteronomy chapter 4. See, I have taught you statutes and rules. As the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules? so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. Moses tells God's people, the nations around you are going to be in awe of two things. One, your God, because he is a God who is near. And two, your law, because it is a righteous law. And they're going to see its righteousness. They'll be able to identify the fact that it is good and righteous and just. Now, it goes without saying that every society in human history has laws. Every society in human history has norms and values. What we often fail to appreciate as we read the Bible is how just and righteous God's law is compared to every other system of law in human history. The legal basis of all Western cultures and civilizations is the law of Moses. This has been the foundation of justice in the Western world for centuries. And so that, that means the things that you take for granted about what justice is are based on the Old Testament, whether you know it or not. One of the people who has seen this and written about it most clearly is Tom Holland, who is a historian, lives and works in the UK. Listen to how he describes his own awakening on this issue from his book, Dominion, written just three years ago. He writes, The more years I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, the more alien I increasingly found it. 
The values of Leonidas, whose people had practiced a particularly or a peculiarly murderous form of eugenics, were nothing that I recognized as my own. Nor were those of Caesar, who was reported to have killed more than a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. It was not just the extremes of callousness that unsettled me, but the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Why did I find this disturbing? Because in my morals and ethics, I was not a Spartan or a Roman at all. Assumptions that I had grown up with about how a society should be properly organized and the principles that it should uphold were not bred of classical antiquity, but were very distinctively the impact of Christianity. Now, Holland is obviously writing in sort of an autobiographical way there, but he's making an important point. If you believe in basic human rights, if you believe that eugenics and genocide are wrong, if you believe that the poor and the weak should be protected, you hold those beliefs because you live in a world shaped by Christianity. These values come from God's law. The ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, the Babylonians, and the Assyrians did not share these beliefs. And their laws did not reflect these values. God's law expresses God's righteousness. The rules he gives to his people are righteous because they flow out of his goodness. And so it really is true that the world has looked at the law of Moses and concluded, what nation is there that has statutes and rules as righteous as this? God's law expresses, manifests, reveals God's righteousness because he is righteous. He has given laws to his people that reflect and express his goodness and righteousness. And so the first thing we have to understand as we think about commandments and laws and rules and statutes that we find in Scripture is that they are an expression of God's goodness and righteousness. But second, God's law exposes our unrighteousness. For this, I want to look in Ezekiel chapter 18, page 660, uh, if you're using one of the Bibles under your seat. And I want you to notice, Ezekiel the prophet here is rebuking God's people. He's calling them to repentance and to account. And notice what he says to them, verse 21 of Ezekiel 18. If a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. Verse 24, but when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die. So here's the question. How do we know whether we are wicked or righteous? By what standard should we judge our lives and our actions and our attitudes? Well, Ezekiel tells us it's by the standard of God's law that this is determined. If someone keeps my statutes, he writes. In other words, God's law exposes our unrighteousness. When we measure our lives against the commandments of God, we see where we fall short. 
and where we need change. It's God's law that holds the mirror up to our lives and that helps us to see the places in our lives that do not conform to the righteousness of God. I mean, this is really all Jesus is doing in the famous Sermon on the Mount. He's saying to the people that are listening to him, hey, listen, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You've heard it said, do not murder. I'm telling you, if you harbor hatred in your heart for another person, you're already murdering them. He's just saying, let me just expose to you how the law of God reveals your sin. See, you've minimized the law of God and sort of made it only external. Like if you're not lifting up a weapon to murder somebody, then you're in the clear. But I'm telling you that this, it's never just been about the external actions. It's always been about the whole of your life and being. All Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is hold the law of God up as a mirror and say, can you see how when you measure your life by this standard, you fall short? And so Ezekiel ends this chapter with this wonderful call to repentance that you heard Mark read just a few minutes ago. The end of the chapter, verse 30, repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. This is the invitation. This is the plea that God makes to every human being. Hey, repent. Turn to me. God's law exposes our unrighteousness, not so that we can wallow in guilt and shame and embarrassment, but so that we can turn to God and live. Unrighteous people like us are to turn from sin and to seek a new heart and a new spirit. That's the invitation God issues through his prophets. And when we heed that invitation, when unrighteous people turn to God, that turning leads them right into the arms of Jesus Christ and right into the good news of the gospel. Listen to how the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, speaks of this. Look at it on the screens with me and pay careful attention to the word law. Notice how he's using the law here as the standard by which we see our unrighteousness and by which we're drawn to Christ. Galatians 3 verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So notice he's telling you two things that the Old Testament make abundantly clear. Number one, that everyone who does not do everything written in God's law falls under a curse. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. So he's saying, even if you keep it all, and fail in one place, you haven't abided by God's law. And so we'd be crazy to rely on our obedience as the measure of what makes us right with God because we can't possibly fully obey God's law. We know that we haven't. And yet he also says the Old Testament also hints to us in Habakkuk 2 verse 4, which is the verse he quotes here, the righteous shall live by faith. He's saying people who really are seeking after righteousness have always known 
that that righteousness has to come from God somehow. So there's two ways of living. You can rely on your own obedience and your own righteousness and your own living up to God's standard. Or you can seek a righteousness from God that comes by faith. And the saints in the Old Testament, though that was still out in front of them, though the righteousness that comes by faith wasn't entirely clear how God was going to provide it, there are abundant promises in the Old Testament that make clear that the righteous people who lived before you and I were looking to God as the hope that somehow he would make up for their unrighteousness. And then he turns, turns the page and says this, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Saying, here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ became a curse for us, came and stood in our place, took the curse that our unrighteousness placed upon humanity and removed it from us so that through him, the promise God made to Abraham could come to us and that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the good news of the gospel, that though the law exposes our unrighteousness, God has made it possible through his grace, through his son, for us to be righteous, for us to receive a righteousness that is not ours, that we did not work for, that we did not create through our own obedience, but that comes to us as his gift by his grace. And so that leads us then to the third point. God's law expresses his righteousness. It exposes our unrighteousness. But third, God's law trains us in righteousness. I really wanted an E word here. I mean, because, you know, pastors like everything to match. Had expresses, exposes, evangelize. It would have been nice to have an E word here. But I went with trains because I just, it's the most important word. Okay? Educates is not the same as training. Right? There's lots of E words that are similar, but they're not the same thing. And this is where I really want to help you see the beauty of God's law. So let me ask you this question. Since God has set his people free from the curse of the law through the death of his son, what kind of people then does he want them to be? The answer is he wants them to be a righteous people, a people who love and obey his law. And that's why he pours out on his people the gift of the Holy Spirit so that he can lead us into righteousness and holiness. And so we're going to step away from the Bible for a minute and go Top Gun Maverick, okay? I assume most of you have seen that movie just because we all were locked in our houses for a few years and the first thing we wanted to do was go to a movie. And, you know, it was the highest grossing movie of last year. If you haven't seen it, I'm not going to ruin anything for you. You can still go home and watch it, all right? But if you have seen that film, you know that the whole sort of character uh, conflict is between Maverick, Tom Cruise, and Rooster, Goose's son, right? And Maverick, the wise, older, more experienced fighter pilot, and Rooster, sort of the young hotshot. And what the, the movie sets up is that Rooster, though he's a very good fighter pilot, is also very cautious. He's a little bit bound up by his own sort of concern to do things right. 
And you remember there's that famous scene in the movie. It shows up twice. They use it later as sort of like um, a later episode as well. But there's that movie, or there's that scene in the movie where Maverick says to Rooster, don't think, just do. Do you remember that? And then later Rooster says that back to Maverick, and it's like this, you know, matching scene toward the end of the movie. The whole point of Rooster's training as a Top Gun pilot is to help him become so habituated to flying a fighter jet that he doesn't think about it. He just does it. It becomes instinctive and intuitive. He's not thinking about it as he does it. He's just doing it. Likewise, God wants his people to be the kind of people who don't think about obedience. We just do it. God wants to so transform you by his Holy Spirit that righteousness becomes second nature to you. You become habituated to the good. More and more, your life just sort of intuitively inclines to the ways of God. That's God's vision for you. Is that your vision for you? Is your vision that God wants to create you into the kind of person that just intuitively kind of inclines toward what pleases him? That's the beauty of what the Holy Spirit has come to make possible. How do we become those kind of people? How can we become the kind of people for whom righteousness and obedience is kind of second nature? Well, the same way Rooster became a Top Gun pilot, by training. See, God's law doesn't just express God's righteousness. It doesn't just expose our unrighteousness. God's law also is the means of training us in righteousness. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 119. It's page 480 in the Bible you have there. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. So if you just go to the Psalms and find the biggest one, you'll be there. I want to read just the first 10 or 11 verses of this psalm. And here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice the language of way, path, walking. All right? Listen to the psalm. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Notice how the psalmist sees God's law, God's commandments, as a path that we walk in as a rule of life, as a way that guides and directs us into goodness. Have you ever had that experience where you're driving home 
from somewhere and maybe you're listening to a song on the radio or maybe it's been a long day and you're just sort of like thinking about everything that's happened or maybe you're on the phone having a conversation with someone and you just end up in your driveway or in front of your apartment and then you're like, I don't even remember how I got here. Okay, I guess I'm here, right? Has this happened to you? Uh, here's what's happened. You've, you've followed that way so long that it's become a habit. Like you don't think about where to turn and how you get there. You just, you're, you intuitively, your instincts, your reflexes know how to get there. And so you can do other things. You can listen to music. You can talk on the phone. You can daydream about what happened today without consciously thinking about where you're going. And you just end up at your house. That's what the psalmist envisions God's people's knowledge of his word to be like. The more you understand God's law, God's rules, God's commandments, the more you delight in them, the more you store them up in your heart, the more you treasure them, the more you get familiar with them, and the more you practice them and obey them and walk in them, here's what happens. You become habituated to the good. You become the kind of person that more instinctively and intuitively just sort of knows the ways to walk in. This is what the Bible calls wisdom. How do you get it? Through the fear of the Lord. And through the study of his word, through storing up his word in your heart, as verse 11 says. So you see, God's law trains us in righteousness. And I'm using the word training because it's more than knowledge. It's more than education. It's more than I've got some data in my head. It's I, I know God's word, but then I'm trying to do it. I'm in a community that's helping me walk in it. And I'm in a community that sings about it and prays it and knows it and learns it together. God's law trains us in righteousness. And this is the good news that the goodness of the gospel doesn't just stop with we're forgiven. It's also the good news that God has sent his spirit to live within us, to guide us in obedience. And so that leads us then to this fourth point. God's law evangelizes a world hungry for righteousness. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 2. If you have one of those Bibles under your chair, it's on page 531. And again, the scriptures will be on the screen behind me. Isaiah chapter 2. Listen to this prophecy that Isaiah gives. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So the prophet Isaiah envisions a day when the nations the peoples shall go up to the mountain of the Lord seeking to learn his ways and to walk in his paths. And that day is now and also later. 
but also now, okay? So let's, let's get our bearings in redemptive history, right? God made a promise to Abraham that he would give Abraham many descendants and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And through the, most of the beginning of the Old Testament, we're just learning how God's going to keep that promise to Abraham and how through Abraham's descendants, all the people of the earth are going to be blessed. And it looks like maybe that's going to happen through God establishing his people Israel and giving them land and a kingdom. But then we learn that they can't keep the kingdom and the land because of their own unrighteousness. And so as we get to the later stages of the Old Testament and to the prophets, the prophets are reminding God's people of their sin. But they're also saying God's still going to fulfill this promise to Abraham. God's still doing this. And he's going to do it through a descendant of Abraham who's going to come and fulfill all these promises. And so we see, as Scripture goes on, that that descendant of Abraham, that one who comes to bring blessing to the whole world, is the Lord Jesus Christ. That he comes to stand in the place of Israel, to fulfill the covenant that they failed to fulfill, to bring forgiveness to unrighteous people, and then to gather a new Israel under his headship and leadership and to give his Holy Spirit so that no longer is it now just physical descendants of Abraham, but everyone, everywhere who comes to faith in Jesus can get in on this promise. And Isaiah is saying when that happens, in those latter days when, when God fulfills this promise, one of the things that's going to happen is that the people of the world are going to start to say, we got to go learn how to do life from God's people. We got to get over there to Zion, to the place where God's people are. We got to learn how they do life. That's you. That's us. That's the church. That's the thing God is doing. When you think of being a missional church or living a missional life, is this part of what you think about? I wonder if often our definition of mission is too narrow. Our definition of our understanding of why we're in the world and what we're to do for God is too narrow. Mission absolutely involves saying to people, hey, we Christians are forgiven sinners, loved and redeemed by Christ. And so if you're a sinner, come and know the love and the forgiveness of Christ. That's absolutely at the heart of our mission. But also the Bible says, out of Zion shall go forth the law. So you might say it this way, it's not just forgiveness that the world needs, it's also direction. The gospel is not just the good news of the work of Jesus, it's also good news of the way of Jesus. The gospel is an invitation into a life set free by Jesus from sin and shame and self. We now get to walk with Jesus into virtue and holiness and moral beauty. And that's what Isaiah has in mind. He just says, hey, when God fulfills these promises, here's what's going to happen. God's people are going to be increasingly beautified. The goodness that overflows from Zion, from the city of God, is going to be so evident that the nations are going to start saying, hey, we got to go learn those ways. we got to go walk in those paths. It seems like that is the way to live. So here's what this means for you, all right? Mission, think about what your mission is in the world as a Christian, what our mission is as God's people. Mission shouldn't just mean, shouldn't only mean that you are a kind of angry person 
who can point other kind of angry people to forgiveness in Jesus. Speaking autobiographically. It should also mean that you're overcoming your anger and increasingly becoming a person of joy and peace. And then when people wonder, where can I go, not just to hide my anger, but to actually be set free from it and change, their answer is, man, those people at church seem to have something figured out. Something's going on there. They're really different. Mission shouldn't just mean you're a struggling parent trying to raise some sinners who can point other struggling parents also trying to raise some sinners to the forgiveness and grace that's in Jesus. It should absolutely mean that. But it should also mean we're actually good at raising kids. Like when people want to know, how can I raise future human beings who are virtuous and confident and self-assured that they look to the church? Mission shouldn't only mean you're a sexually broken person who can point other sexually broken people to the healing and grace and forgiveness that's in Jesus. It should absolutely mean that. But also, it should also mean that we as a people are increasingly displaying the beautiful fruit of sexual chastity and fidelity and virtue. So that when people wonder, where can I go to to see human sexuality in a beautiful and redeemed and restored way, they think of the church. This is what the mission of God is. Not just the proclamation of forgiveness, but also the invitation into a way and that we would somehow display in a meaningful way the beauty of what God's righteousness brings to a people. We're never going to display it as perfectly as we will in the new heavens and the new earth. But absolutely, this promise is part of what God is doing right now through his Holy Spirit in us. Listen, in the coming decades, in our world, you are going to see more and more refugees from the sexual revolution, which is harming people because of its vision of what human freedom and real sexuality looks like. That's just going to harm people. It already is. And so you're going to see more and more refugees looking for a better country. And when the world around us starts to wonder, where can we go to recover a healthy, normal, beautiful vision of manhood and womanhood, of masculinity and femininity, of, of human virtue and goodness, may the answer be the church. I don't think we are that right now, as fully as we need to be. But that's what God wants for us, is that we would be a place where people can go and see, oh, here's what life looks like well-lived. Here's what life looks like when people come under the rule and reign of Jesus, and when his law begins to have effect in their lives in ways that actually change them. Out of Zion shall go forth the law, Isaiah says, a law of liberty, a law of freedom, a law of flourishing and life. God's law, friends, evangelizes a world Hungry for righteousness. Now, your neighbors will not come to you tomorrow and say, man, I'm really hungry for righteousness. Where can I find that? But every one of us has a deep longing for moral beauty. Every one of us is attracted to people who have virtue and character. You know that because there are those people in your life and you respect them. 
You know that because that's one of the reasons that even if people don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, they still seem to have a respect for who he was because he lived a morally beautiful life. God's law evangelizes a world that's hungry for righteousness. So what I've just done this morning is to give you in a very summary form a whole biblical theology of God's law. God's law expresses the righteousness of God. It exposes our unrighteousness and calls us to repentance and drives us to Christ for forgiveness and freedom. It trains us in righteousness and it evangelizes a world that's hungry for righteousness. And so as we prepare to close in prayer, come to the Lord's table, celebrate the gift of God's righteousness in Jesus, I want to give you just three quick points of application. Here they are. We should love God's law. We should learn God's law. We should live God's law. Okay? First of all, we should love God's law. Like part of my goal is for you to walk out of here not just like begrudgingly tolerating God's law, not knowing that there's some commandments in the Bible, but we read them fast so we can really get to the gospel of John, right? But loving God's law, like being really grateful that a good God has given us his good law so that we can walk in it. We should love God's law. We should, with the psalmist, rejoice that God has given us such good and righteous rules that guide us into such good and righteous conduct and that bring our lives flourishing and blessing. Second, we should learn God's law. And what that means is we should just be the kind of people who get familiar with especially the Ten Commandments. Also, parts of the Bible like Deuteronomy. That shouldn't be a place you only go when there's a sermon on Deuteronomy, right? It should be a book that you actually know a little bit about. Um, if you look back over the history of Christianity and ask, what are the most ba- when, when someone is a brand new Christian, what are the most basic things the church has tended to impart to them? It's always three things. The Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Those are the substance of almost every historic catechism in the church's history. Because we need to know the substance of the faith we believe. We need to know how to pray. And we need to know how to live. And so your fourth and fifth graders that are across the courtyard are learning the New City Catechism, which includes the Ten Commandments. And likewise, we should be people who learn God's law and know it and meditate on it. And then third, we should, we should live God's law. And friends, this is why we as a church joyfully together Repent of our sin every single week and hear God's words of assurance and pardon because what we want to be is a people increasingly who are acknowledging our own unrighteousness when we measure ourselves against the standard of God's law, but who also are learning to live in the joy and freedom of obedience. And so we should live in a life of repentance and faith, always turning back to God, always hearing that call at the end of Ezekiel 18, turn to me and live. And our hearts should be, yes, I want to turn to you and live. I want to walk in your ways and keep your rules and obey your commandments. This is the life Jesus Christ has made possible. And this is the life the Holy Spirit has come to empower. So let's pray that God would give us the grace to walk in his ways. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a righteous God who has given us righteous rules. Thank you for the way that your law manifests the goodness of your righteousness. We acknowledge this morning sitting here our unrighteousness, the ways we have not kept your law. We acknowledge that we will sit here again next week still acknowledging our unrighteousness and the ways we have not kept 
your law. But Father, would you not allow our fallenness and our sinfulness to be a way of excusing neglect for your law or disobedience? But Father, help us increasingly seek to grow in love for you and therefore in love for righteousness, in love for goodness, in love for the ways you've asked us to live. Father, we want to see that prophecy that Isaiah gave fulfilled. We want to see the world looking to your people and saying, those people know something about a beautiful and good life. How can we learn what they know? And so, Father, we want to ask that you would increasingly beautify our lives, make our conduct pleasing to you, make us a church that loves your law, that loves the gospel, that loves Christ, that loves the power of the Spirit to change us. And so would you continue that work in our souls even today as we come to your table. We pray for our good and for your glory. Amen.